So, dear Arbury Road followers, today we have again a very special guest. Guest, we are very happy to have him. It's Nils Fudersang uh, from the Danish Social Democrats. Before I'll say welcome to him, and I'll do that in Danish shortly, but the rest of the podcast will be in English, so still stay here if you don't are a Danish speaker. Um, I remember you that uh, this project lives also from the, your help, so please follow us. Uh, even a, a coffee you pay to us is a great help for us. So, nu siger jeg velbekommen, Nils. Jeg er meget glad, at du har fundet uh, til for, uh, for Arbury Road. Og hvordan var din uh, dag uh, i dag? <laughs> den var god. Tak skal du have. Og, og den, den var god. Den er travl. En travl dag. Der er mange møder, men, men jeg glæder mig til at være med her i jeres podcast. Og det kan jeg mig forestille, at du har mange møller, og derfor siger jeg tak for din tid. So now we'll start uh, right away um, with the discussion. First of all, um, we'll give uh, to Nils uh, the possibility to present uh, himself a little bit uh, thorough. In, in particular, for us, Nils has the great advantage. It's interesting for us because he is doing a podcast. So maybe you can say something about this podcast. And of course, this will be one of the main issues of this uh, podcast. And uh, secondly, you are also a member of the delegation EU-China, uh, which is, I think, one of the most interesting uh, relations in the geopolitical uh, situation at the moment. So please, Nils, I, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's a great pleasure to be on, on, the, on the podcast. And may I compliment your Danish? Uh, I don't know where you learned that, but uh, it sounded pretty good. Min Okay, all right, that makes sense. Um, anyway, I um, well, I did this past podcast called uh, "What's Left," um, <clears throat> and it's a podcast about the social democrats in Europe and about what I would call the crisis of the social democrats in Europe. <clears throat> Now I did. I, I I made the podcast in the spring of 2020, and since then things have gone a little bit better. And especially in in Germany, where the Chancellor um, Olaf Scholz uh, has has uh, taken has taken the victory. Um, also in Norway, uh, that's outside the European Union, but 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 in in Europe, uh, where the Social Democrats have, have won elections. But still, I would say the overall. Um, situation for the social democrats is still that we stand considerably weaker than than some decades ago and i i did this um well i i i paid attention to my colleagues in the group room in the european parliament uh, in the sense that they are fewer than they were last mandate and in the last mandate they were fewer than they were in the good old days and so i wondered what what has uh, what has gone wrong or, or how do we explain this? And so I basically spoke to a number of colleagues from, uh, from Germany, from, from Portugal, from France, from um, Sweden, Italy. Um, and, and, and so it, I, I think I did eight episodes or something like that. I spoke to Joseph Stiglitz and, 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 and some other experts. Try to trying to understand what was going on in different different countries. You know, the Danish Social Democrats have not been doing that bad. Uh, we are in government uh, right now. We've been so since 2019. Uh, and uh, the Portuguese uh, 
social democrats or socialists, depending on which country you are, they're doing very well. I think they are above 30%, 35%, 36%, something like that, in the last elections, and they are in government. And those in the spring, those, I think, were the social democrats who did best. The, the German SPD was certainly not doing well in, in the spring. I mean, there were some polls where they were behind. Um, well, they, they were 15% or something like that. And I think the Greens, they were in some polls in the spring, the big, the largest party in German politics. Um, so I thought, what, what is the common denominator? What, what is the, is there, is there anything, you know, when you look at Portugal and Denmark, what is the similarity? Is there something that they have in common? I think what they did to some extent, they're very different countries. So there are many specific conditions that don't apply to both of them. But I think one thing that they, they did have somewhat in common is um, that they both um, they both took a an issue with what we could call politics of necessity. They both uh, went up against what you could call politics of necessity. And when I talk about politics of necessity, I mean uh, a policy that you've had in Denmark, that you've had in many other countries. I would argue that you also had in Germany where you say, okay, uh, we have globalization and we need to compete with other countries. And how do we do that? Well, we better uh, cut taxes for the wealthy, for top income groups, better cut corporate tax rates. And then we better um, cut social uh, insurance, social benefits, so that people are not too lazy, so, so that they, people will actually work instead of going on social, uh, social benefits. And so you basically decrease the redistribution of the welfare state, increasing inequality in society. And you said this is necessary. This is a this is why I would go. we in Denmark we we have an expression called uh, policy policy of necessity or politics of necessity. This is necessary. We don't necessarily want to do it, but we have to do it because otherwise we'll the Chinese will outcompete us or or Germany will outcompete us or other countries will outcompete us. All our neighbors will out. So we have, to, and that that is going to be a race to the bottom. Uh, if everybody cuts uh, corporate tax rates, for example, and basically it's an advantage to those who earn the most. It's a, an advantage to big companies and those who hold big fortunes. It's not a, necessarily an advantage to uh, those who are dependent on the welfare uh, state, uh, and those are a lot of our voters, I would say. So maybe some of these voters have uh, said, uh, well, we don't think that's really uh, what we were promised and we don't appreciate it. And uh, the globalization that was supposed to be so cool, it's not, maybe it's not that cool anyway. Um, and I think, so my point is, um, I think Denmark and Portugal, Portugal in, in particular, um, changed that pol pol policy and went up against the pol policy of necessity and said, we, we don't want to, uh, you know, they were one of the countries that went basically bankrupt during after the financial crisis, and the EU pushed them or put pressure on them to make uh, austerity policies, uh, which they did for some time. But then they went up against them and said, "No, um, we've got to actually uh, increase wages and um, increase public uh, consumption to invest in the society," and so they increased employment and. Um, and they actually um, went from, from a downturn in the economy to a boom in the economy. 
and it has worked pretty well for them. In Denmark, we have um, not, you know, we have not been exposed to hardcore austerity policies like like Portugal, um, but we have, I mean, during the last 20, 30 years, both social democrats and liberal conservative governments have actually uh, decreased redistribution and increased inequality. And I think we, we the, the current government is um, trying to correct that. So we have uh, we have introduced pensions to some of the people who are who have been the longest on the labor market. They are they can now retire earlier than before. They have the right to do that. Um, and that's uh, the first time we have done something like that in decades to decrease the labor supply, basically to say, uh, you know, it's okay that you step out of the that you take your retirement because you you deserve it. Um, and uh, of course, you have to find the money to do this. But but this is uh, we we have, I mean, we we have uh, a pretty uh, a solid public budget. We 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 could afford this. So basically, I think that's what they have in common, uh, and and that's the roots of the social democratic crisis that we have globalization combined with a policy of necessity where you cut down on redistribution. And I think voters have punished us for that. I like very much the concept uh, that you express from, from the Danish politics of politics of necessity. And actually, I remember when I started to become politically active, I was in a sense envying the 80s because then there was a more positive approach from the left of doing positive uh, of doing politics than five years ago actually that's a little bit what you were describing in germany or in italy or in italy or often the campaigns where you have to vote us and we have to do great coalitions and to introduce liberal market reforms as the Schroeder market did because it's a necessity and it was not about the positive view how social democracy can shape the future and maybe this is how the discourse now is changing because now also in Spain the social democrats are in government also in Germany maybe because with this new industrial revolution we have again the, the chance to shape something positively I'll have a question before going um, further in details about the podcast about this uh, um, issue you have spoken about that globalization uh, has put under pressure the social system in a way and uh, created a wave of liberalization in the past uh, years. Um, here, the question is a little bit, well, the promise of the European Union for me or the social European Union is a convergence going up instead of, of a convergence downward. And uh, an element of this convergent upward could be an European minimum wage in a form or another. Um, now I know that uh, this is seen quite critically in, in, in Denmark, also related to the Faubewegels, uh, the trade unions. And maybe you can explain the perspective uh, and the, skeptic, uh, the skepticality that the problems about uh, such a project. <clears throat> yes, uh, I, I think you, you are right that uh, a minimum wage could be seen as a race upwards instead of a, or convergence upwards instead of a race to the bottom. I think our problem with the minimum wage in, in Denmark, and we stand here with the Swedes, um, it's the Danish and the Swede, Swedish who are mainly opposing this idea, is our problem is that we have a model, we don't have a minimum wage, um, uh, we don't have a law on a minimum wage in Denmark, we have a labor union negotiations, so the labor union, the labor unions and the employers unions, they and negotiate each year on the wages. 
um, and we've done so since 1899. Um, and actually, you you can you you can it's legal to pay a wage below that uh, that negotiation result. But if you do that, then the labor unions have the right to make a conflict against you. They can strike. They can also block uh, you from getting. Uh, they can block you from getting goods from other uh, companies and so on. So they can make your life pretty difficult. And that's why most employers, they actually stick to the uh, wages that are negotiated. And then they are members of an employer organization. So it's an organized labor market where we negotiate the wages. And our experience is that that system has worked uh, rather well. We are we're happy with that, with that system. We, we think that we have negotiated uh, compared to countries where you have a legal minimum wage, we've negotiated higher wages. Uh, I think myself, I, you know, I agree with this analysis. I think if, you know, we have a pretty equal society in Denmark, it's getting less equal uh, because of the things we talked about um, just a minute ago, but, but it's still pretty equal um, compared to many countries in the sense that you know, the, the, the people who own the, the companies and who make profit a certain share of that profit is is distributed into wages. So the, the the workers they have they get a good share of the profit basically, compared to most places. And I think that is a result of of the of the negotiations. I think if I should point one thing that that really has mattered for the for the Danish welfare society, it is the the the, the we call it the Danish model, uh, which is the negotiations around the around the wages. Uh, and not only wages, also working conditions, for example, right to have a vacation, right to have maternity or paternity leave, uh, right to have a job that doesn't wear you down. Um, and so and we, have, we have fought for these rights throughout the last um, century, uh, where we have negotiated or labor unions have negotiated more and more rights. And if we have a minimum uh, wage, legal minimum wage, we are quite certain that it will be lower than our negotiation results. And so it will, for Denmark, it will risk uh, lowering our wages. And we, of course, don't want that. So we're saying, you know, uh, every country is, it can, can have a minimum uh, wage. And that is, of course, their decision. And in some countries, it might even be very good idea because the labor unions are not strong, so they cannot negotiate. Um, and I know that Olaf Scholz, for example, he wants a higher minimum wage, and that might be a good idea in Germany. But but we would like we would like to keep our system. So so um, we don't want an EU-wide minimum wage. We want the countries to want an, a minimum wage. They they should just do that. Uh, but then we don't want a, a EU system that sort of just threatens our system. That's that's our position. Yeah, thanks for explaining. Actually, again, time is hunting us. Otherwise, I think it's a broad issue where we could discuss for hours. But let's go a little bit um, again back to the podcast because Arbury Road is a similar concept. We also saw it was developed by uh, PhD um, 
students in, uh, in Cambridge when the Brexit happened, actually, again, they felt that the Social Democrats were not doing a positive campaign in, in, in England about to avoid the, the, the Brexit, and they wanted to develop a more yeah, positive, more aggressive, in a sense, social policy from the social democracy and from the progressive spectrum. We don't see us, especially close to Social Democrats, also Greens uh, or, or, or the left. And we're also searching to develop new concepts of what does it mean uh, to be left. And you have already uh, spoken a little bit about it, but when doing a European podcast, we face the problem, the problem of language, as we have seen also in this podcast. So uh, you found a solution. I hear that your podcast, you do an introduction in Danish and also in between, maybe you explain the general situation in Danish. Um, and then the interview is uh, uh, in English. Um, maybe how did you have the idea and uh, how does it feel as a format? Are you satisfied with it? Uh... Well, uh, thank you for, for those questions. I mean, uh, well, I got, I actually, my assistant, you know, in the European Parliament, we have, uh, we are fortunate enough to have some resources so we can hire people. So I have a couple of people who help me here with my parliamentary work. And one of, um, one of these guys got the idea. Um, and um, it was actually just looking at, at uh, around in Europe and, and speaking with, with my colleagues and speaking with his, my assistant, he's, he spoke with people in the parliament and we, we realized that, you know, it's, it's actually not going so well for the social Democrats, it could go better. So we're both we're politically interested people um, trying to also read uh, international newspapers and follow, follow the debate. And so uh, we thought that's, that's a pretty interesting question. And I thought for the Danish audience, it would be interesting. We, at that time now, our government is, is a little bit more under, under pressure because of some, some different um, political questions. But, but at that time, um, in particular, uh, the government was really uh, doing, doing very good. And we thought, but that's not the case in the rest of Europe. Uh, Social Democrats are not doing so good. Um, and so we thought it would be interesting to, um, to, to investigate that, basically. And I, th I think being a member of the European Parliament, you have a pretty good position for investigating, investigating it. Since I could just go and speak with my colleagues from all these countries, you, you learn a lot from different countries in Europe. And um, yes, then I did it in Danish, um, the introduction. Uh, but um, and and, I'm, and am I satisfied with that? In, in, yes, I am satisfied with with the, the result. I, I am proud of, of the podcast. It's mainly the the audience is mainly Danish social democrats. So I'm wondering if if I you know should continue the podcast, but then actually just change it to English the whole thing because perhaps there would be and perhaps your own podcast is the test is a testimony of that. Perhaps there would be interested interest for a, a larger audience because it is a, not a Danish question necessarily, it's a European question and, and it's about the European social democrats. What we actually decided to do is also to do to use English as the common language for articles and, and podcasts, but also do podcasts in between in other languages. For example, today I did also one in German, we had some in Italian. So I I have to admit, we hadn't not, until now not one in Danish, uh, but uh, we are working on that. Well, with, yeah, your, with you. your language, you can easily, uh, <laughs> easily make one in Danish. 
Who's intact? Who's intact? Yeah, let's see. Let's see. I, I'll work on that. Uh, let's touch uh, a, a last uh, issue that is very important. Uh, as I said, time is hunting us today. The EU-China um, relation. Uh, you are in the delegation of the European Parliament for the EU uh, and China relation. First of all, maybe I would like to ask because I'm working at the European Parliament, so I, maybe we'll meet uh, the next day. Although now with the reduced presence work, it's difficult. Um, but uh, the question is, uh, how does it work with the delegation? Who chooses who is member in the delegation? And uh, um, what is uh, the, the duty of this delegation so that our hearers uh, uh, can get an idea of uh, what uh, it is about? Well, basically, uh, when you start in the European Parliament, you, um, you make a wish list for the committees and the delegations you want to sit in. And I chose China, and it's not self-evident. You cannot get everything you want because there are more people who want to sit in the China delegation that, than there are spaces or there are seats in the China, China delegation. But I was lucky enough to, to get in there. Uh, it's a negotiation with the other delegations and so on. Um, and I'm happy to get to, to be there because I think China is really a, a fundamental, fundamental question for us. How, are, how is our relationship with China going to be? China rising in power and influence and economy and um, at the same time not obviously not having the same values as we do uh, or having different values when it comes to human rights democracy uh, and so on so uh, I think it's an important question for the European Union so so I'm very happy to uh, I think it's meaningful to, to deal with that Indeed, for me, I spent three months working in Shanghai some years before Corona, luckily. It was indeed a life-shaping experience, seeing how really different. And you discover also how similar we Europeans are in that sense, thinking of China. Um, so maybe you can give us an overview of how you see the relations in a geopolitical context between the EU and China, and what can be the future developments of, of this relation. Yes, I think that the relationship has changed quite a lot from being a sort of an economic trade relation where we have accepted uh, a lot um, of different stuff from, from China because we didn't see them as a threat or a, as a uh, rival. Right now we have a, our strategy, I believe we call them a system, systemic rival. Also, uh, also someone we want to cooperate with, but also a rival to some extent. Um, you know, because I think we, we, we realized that uh, having investments from China in, for example, critical infrastructure is not only about trade and business, it's also about politi political influence. Um, and they don't have uh, the same interests as we do always. So, um, you know, having... Um, the largest, uh, having the harbor of uh, Athens, it's called Piraeus, owned by the Chinese, might not be a very good idea because they can use that uh, economic power to put pressure on, on, on Greece if they uh, have an opinion about the human rights violations in, in Hong Kong or, or, or elsewhere uh, around China. Um, so I think we've become less naive. I think it's about high time we, we become less naive. Um, you know, the, the, the famous economist Milton Friedman, he said, he's been quoted for saying, the business of business is business. So uh, when 
when when businesses or companies uh, trade, it's about making money. It's about business, but uh, that's not the case with China. Always, it's the business of business is also politics, uh, and uh, I think we need to be aware of that. And I think there is sort of a changing atmosphere or changing opinion. Uh, it changed radically from, from from just a couple of years ago, as far as I can see. And China has also behaved. Uh, it's become very exposed how China behaves in, in relation to Xinjiang or, or Hong Kong or Taiwan, um, and so uh, so we also need to understand that this is uh, this is about values and it's about politics. I think for social democrats, uh, re having to reply to Milton Friedman is one of the favorite hobbits, actually, <laughs> the most famous neoliberal theoretical person. Um, then maybe let's uh, have a look. It's a good action bridge to my last question about China, um, about this uh, from neoliberal policy to a really more socialistic policies. We've seen that China in the last uh, 30 years since the opening of China has basically really adopted a capitalistic system when it comes to economy, not when it comes to politics. But there are some signals that may like, think that some things are changing. For example, now the government kind of forced big tech company to do donations for educational projects. And uh, there was a meeting of the, um, of the, in August of the Commission for Finance and Economy. And the, the spokesperson for the Chinese government said that it was about wealth for everyone, that it meant for really for everyone and not for some few persons. Are we seeing that uh, China is uh, discovering that the that capitalism is uh, maybe not in its uh, purest form the solution to Chinese problem that they have now to build really a strong state guaranteeing for social wealth to everyone in, in this sense being a more systemic threat because if they really can up, uh, build up welfare for everybody um, then it's even more difficult for us as social democrats to argument uh, why our liberal democracy are working best yes um well i think that that china has certainly i mean we thought that china would go in the direction of um, opening up democracy it had become capitalist to some degree um and 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 normally actually in the theories of the political th theories on, on democracy and capitalism you would say that you know, when you have capitalism you will have a, a middle class and that mid middle class will start uh, demanding democracy so capitalism leads to democracy and i think Many thought that that was what, it, what was going to happen in, in China, and I think there were signs that, that was happening to some degree. But uh, later years with um, Xi Jinping has shown that, that that was not the case. Um, uh, you know, China has gone in the opposite direction when it comes to democracy, uh, but also when it, you know, looking at capitalism in China, uh, I think we've seen that the state is still very much in control about what, what's going to happen. Uh, you know, you have this guy, Jack Ma from uh, Alibaba, who uh, is uh, one of the biggest businessmen and richest people in China, who came up with a criticism on, on how the government regulated, and then he disappeared for, for four months or something like that. Um, he, was, he was also called Crazy Jack. I don't know. <laughs> I think he has some, some, some different ideas, but Anyway, that's that was besides the point. He he disappeared, and and now there's not so much criticism from his side. 
So I think this the state is still showing that uh, you know it it is the state that decides how capitalism works. Uh, it's it's not the other way around, and the state doesn't open up too much when it comes to democracy either. So I think unfortunately they have not gone in the in the in the direction of, of our values, um, but um, but we need to you know we need to cooperate with them, especially when it comes to climate change and the, the massive challenges challenges that we face. So I think it's right to both look at them as a as a rival and as someone we need to to cooperate with. Yeah, that's uh, a good uh, thinking, uh, introduction of the ending, I think, for this podcast, as uh, you have a full uh, schedule. Nils, tusen tak for the until again. Tak skal du have. It was a, a, a good and enlightening discussion. So, dear Arbury here, this was Nils. We hope to have him as guest also in the future. And uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. And... Uh, Don't forget, now you discovered another interesting podcast called What's Left, done by Nils Fulesang, where actually the last podcast were even with German MAPs like the Lara Burkert. Uh, so that was it. Mm-hmm.